You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Good morning. Welcome. Man, we're limping through it, guys. We're limping through it, but we're, we're going to make it, right? So, so here's the deal. I um, was not supposed to be up here today. So I know Austin just almost apologized, like, like, we're not the ones that are going to be sorry, but like for your kids, like they might be sorry after this, but um, it's obviously just kind of hitting everywhere right now. Um, Matt and, and Christy are at home, not feeling well. And so he was supposed to be up and walk us through um, uh, this kind of beautiful discussion about um, the 10 words. And otherwise, um, or instead of that, I'm, you got me. So we'll see how it goes. I had to scramble Thursday and, and put something together. If you're new, um, despite all the kind of craziness that we're probably all feeling, man, we just want to welcome you here to our community, and we're glad that you're with us. Um, we have been, since the new year kicked off, in a series kind of through the Ten Words, more commonly called the Ten Commandments, and um, we've kind of come to this like understanding of them, and we're trying to recognize not only like how they are to play ourselves out in our lives, like we most certainly are supposed to have a relationship with God's commandments to his people and live lives of obedience to them. But we're also trying to kind of lift them out of like a list of rules and understand that um, it's about relationship. It's about a loving relationship. And it's not something that we follow and obey to, to be saved, but rather something that God gives us as his people to live and flourish in. And so um, last week, we really introduced the, the concept that as we continue this discussion around the 10 words, we should always be looking at them through the lens of an invitation, an invitation to experience relationship for the people that first receive them um, to experience relationship with this new God that, that maybe like in the distant past of some of their memories, like they knew. But it had been centuries since Yahweh, the God that they are now invited into relationship, had, had like made himself known to them. And he made himself known to this guy, Abraham, and made a promise to Abraham. And God continues to make promises to his people in this story. And what we discovered is as God is inviting now this people to, to be a people that would exclusively and only worship him. And so he's inviting them into this beautiful relationship. It's, it's covenant language. And covenant language always comes with promise. And so we're going to look at it through that lens today. This is probably the sermon that I would have preached at the end of this series. I had collected enough thoughts to be able to put something together Friday and yesterday for us today. And so we're going to look at it through this particular lens today of promise, of covenant um, and the reality to that, and, and it, it scrambles my brain, right? Because I look at the story that this story is found in, and we see the consequences. We see the severe consequences almost immediately as God establishes promise and covenant with his people, and they break it, right? They don't hold up their end of the bargain. And so it boggles my mind why God continues to make promises to his people. And then I'm so reassured why he does, because I see that like God's people will break their end of the promises, but he always keeps his. And so that's what we're going to look at today. How does God keep his promises to his people through the lens of 
the Decalogue or the 10 words that he gave to his people. So let me pray and we're going to jump into this. Father, we thank you uh, for your word to us today. God, we don't, we don't worship the Bible, um, but we recognize that you are the God of these words. You are the God who spoke these words to your people. You speak them today to us. And so we want to look to your words, to your people, so that our attention and our gaze and our worship and our heart's focus could be drawn to you, the great God who loves his people and keeps his promises. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. So if we were to like fast forward this story, the story that we're looking at takes place in like Exodus, right? So that's like the very beginning of the Bible. If you're to fast forward through the entirety of the Old Testament, like by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, there's like a deep irony at play in that story. Like read the book of Malachi at some point and you'll see it played out because Israel had been living in the land of promise and deliverance for centuries. And the irony is this, they're, they're squarely in the place of deliverance, but once again, they find themselves waiting to be delivered. They're living now in occupied territory. The land of promise had become for them a land of oppression. So as the New Testament opens, the land of promise is under the dominion and rule of the Roman Empire. There's no longer an autonomous nation of Israel. It's unrecognizable. God's people are living under Roman rule and occupation, and they're pining right? They're pining for God to intervene. They're begging. They're, they're pleading for God to intervene and deliver them once again. They've always expected deliverance because they're hanging on like maybe just the last little glimpse of promise. And they would have always expected deliverance to occur in a specific place, which is the wilderness in the Jordan River Valley, the same place where God had brought them centuries before and delivered them in the days of Moses and Joshua. And because of this, bands of Israelites in Jesus's day, they would go back out into the wilderness because that's where the promise was given. That's where the promise was fulfilled. And so they would go back out into the wilderness, away from spying eyes and eavesdropping ears, and they would form militia armies or esoteric communities. For example, the Essenes. They were this obscure Jewish sect, and they expected that the Messiah would arrive. And when the Messiah arrives, he would bring about the end of the world as they knew it. So they removed themselves from like proper society and they formed these like, like proto-monastic communes out in the wilderness. Think probably like a lot of drum circles, right? And hula hoops. They were out like tripping on DMT and listened to a lot of Ravi Shankar. I don't know what was going on, but like that was what the Essenes were doing, right? So, so these are the same dudes who took the Dead Sea Scroll and then stashed them away in some caves, not to be discovered until like the 20th century. So eventually the Romans began to hunt down the Essenes. And, and you can't blame them. Put yourself in the sandals of Rome, of a Roman citizen. Like your king is Caesar and your empire is founded on his rule. You believe him to be, and even if you don't, you're still forced to worship him as a deity. And so you can't tolerate a band of radicals who might be conspiring to enthrone a new king and declare a new empire. So the Essenes get wiped out. But if you were a Jewish person living in the first century and you still held out any hope that God would bring his promises 
to fruition, that he would intervene in human history, that he would send his long-awaited promised Messiah, you were thinking his Messiah is coming to overthrow the ruling authorities. If you expected him then to demolish this oppressive Roman empire and reestablish the nation of Israel as the ruler and the occupier of the promised land. So what you would do, if that's the hope that you were hanging on to, you would retreat to the wilderness, right? And you would attract followers and you would plot an insurgency and you'd wait for the right moment. Eventually there'd be a conflict. And when you track the history of the first century, every would-be Messiah or military leader hoping to pave the way for this Messiah to come would eventually end up hanging from a Roman cross, which is the preferred method of the Romans. That's how they would execute insurrectionists. However, despite facing those severe consequences, knowing that if you were to establish, lead, form, any form of like insurrection, like it's inescapable. There was a cross waiting for you. People kept trying. They kept going out into the wilderness where they expected God to fulfill his promise. So, so take in this like beautiful proclamation and you'll understand why. This is from the prophet Isaiah. He says, a voice cries, where? In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain will be made and every hill will be made low. I love how he describes like things being inversed and set right. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And so they're expecting it, right? Because of these words, they're thinking wilderness. Wilderness is where it's going to go down. So it's important to understand, like the conventional thinking of the time, it went like this. If you want or need to make the world right, you look to God. God's going to be the one to fix it, to to rescue you, to, to turn things upside down. And if you want that to happen, the place that it's going to happen is out in the wilderness, because as a people, that's what they've known. God's always taken them out to the wilderness. They've seen God move in the wilderness. So by the time that Jesus is in his late 20s or maybe early 30s, He's got this like crazy eccentric cousin named John. And John had gone out into the wilderness. Why? Because John believed that the Messiah would come from the wilderness because of words that were spoken from the prophet Isaiah, right? So he ventured into the Jordan River Valley again, but instead of starting a commune, instead of building an army of dissidents, he puts on his camel skin chacos. And I'm upgrading. I feel like we've done the Birkenstock thing enough now, right? Like we can kind of move Jesus away from Birkenstocks. We're going Chacos from here on out, right? And he stands in a river and he begins to attract people, right? Who shared his same feelings, his same beliefs, the same expectations. John is the perfect guy for the job because he really gets the wilderness. He's wearing animal skins. He's eating crickets and wild honey. He's the OG Bear Grylls, right? And people refer to him as the baptizer. That comes from the Greek word uh, to baptize, um, which means this. It means to immerse, to plunge, or even to drown because well, that's what he was doing. And I mean, he wasn't drowning people, but he was dunking people in the Jordan River. 
So he's clearly a product of the wilderness, right? He, he, he went out as every prophet does, expecting and hailing God's intervention in human history to redeem and to rescue his people. And he does all of this at the very precise location that his people centuries before had entered into the land of promise. They saw the fulfillment of God's promises as they crossed over the Jordan River. So for them, it's a significant place, right? John, in essence, as he's baptizing people in the Jordan River, he's recreating the Exodus experience. He's performing this like very highly symbolic act that would evoke memories. It would pull these memories out from the people of this like sacred historical event that defined them as a people. Remember we said like week one, Sinai stretches from the beginning all the way to the end, not just the Old Testament. I mean, its implications go all the way through. And so now he's out at this same spot where their memories would have come alive, and he's doing it in the same river, the same river that divided the wilderness of wandering for the people from the land of promise. And he was saying this, he's saying, God is about to bring his deliverance. So, so turn away, turn away from every other God, every other idol that you're seeking, turn from every other kingdom that you desire and return to Yahweh because God is coming again right now. And this is so important. Like what do the gospels tell us? That John and Jesus, they're preaching the same thing. They're saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so turn away from all things that are not the kingdom of God and his king. And that was not that it was like eventually going to happen. Like when John's preaching that message, he's not like, hey, let's look to some distant future. He's saying it's not going to happen someday. He's saying it's happening right now. The kingdom is breaking into history and it's with Jesus who's standing right in front of you. Look at Mark's gospel. He, his opening chapter of his gospel tells like this beautiful picture. He, he paints between what John is called to do and what Jesus is called to do and how that unifies to fulfill the promises of God. At the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before you. Like all of this should sound familiar as you start to process this against what, what Isaiah said, right? So behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem was going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And then skip down a little bit more in that, in that opening chapter. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn apart and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. And like God doesn't say this and I want to be cautious, but I think that what God is saying and you are my beloved son with you, I am well pleased. He's also saying like you are the fulfillment of every promise I've ever made to my people. And then look what happens next, right? You go, to, you go just a few verses down, and, and you, the, like the irony of this cannot be lost on, the, on us, right? Because, because just a few short verses after this spectacular scene where God's Messiah shows up and is declared by his cousin John, the voice in the wilderness, saying, 
make everything straight because the Messiah is coming, where does Jesus go? Almost immediately following his baptism. He goes into the wilderness, right? The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So like you can't miss that Jesus goes out into the wilderness for that specific amount of time, like 40 days, 40 days of temptation. So this is his first fulfillment of the promise of Exodus history, the 40 days of Christ's wilderness experience where he's tempted, right? To the, we have to make a correlation to the 40 days of, of Israel's or 40 years of Israel like wandering through the desert. And we have to compare those things. We have to hold those things up, right? We look at the, the experience of the Israelites wandering through the desert for 40 days. The children of Israel, what do they do? Well, they complain. They succumb to temptations. They, they compromise covenant. They're, they're unfaithful to God. They lust after food and power. And then you've got Jesus being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. He's presented with the exact same temptations that they failed to be obedient, that they gave into. And that's where the comparison stops because God's Messiah remained faithful to every temptation. He did not give in. He does not sin like the people. And so think about all of this. We, we have this cricket-eating prophet and this ha his handyman cousin. They are the apparent fulfillment of God's hundreds of years of promises to his people, right? That's it. That's the scene. The, the problem is this deliverance for the people was not in any way what they expected, right? Like, how could it be? Look at the people that God's fulfilling his promise through. Neither John nor Jesus carried a sword. Neither advocated for overthrowing the government. Instead of revolution and weapons of war, they wielded something far more potent and dangerous. The radical message of a new kingdom and a new king. They said with clarity and sometimes with forcefulness that God's kingdom is here, it's arrived, it's now, it's breaking in, which was so confusing to the people. Like imagine if you're living in Jesus's day, you've been praying daily for the Messiah to come and, and, and your prayer is, God, would you send your Messiah to rescue us? And would, would that Messiah exact revenge on the Romans who basically own the land, which means they pretty much own you. And so they're looking at this scene, right? And they're like, our religious leaders are corrupt. Our political leaders are in bed with the occupiers. I mean, we still believe in God. Like we still try to stay faithful to the law of Moses. But man, it, you keep having this internal conversation. Like, if God loves us so much, if God's so faithful, why is there a pagan emperor in charge of the world God has promised to us, the land that God has promised to us to flourish in? None of this feels like flourishing. None of this feels like promises fulfilled. But then along comes some woodworker from this little podunk place in the country. His cousin is crazy, and then he says, good news, the kingdom is coming, and I am the king. To which I'd say, I've got some questions. Where's your sword? Where's your army? If you're the king and you're bringing the kingdom, how exactly do you expect to overthrow like this superpower, right? And there's this crucial truth at work here. And I think this, like, I don't know about you guys, like this is such a basic truth, 
Like, it's written here. I'm about to say it. And even as I'm about to say it, I'm like, why am I saying this to us as a people? Like, there's no reason at this point that all of you have not heard this 1,000 times. But if you're anything like me, you forgot it precisely 1,000 times also. And it's just so simple. God keeps his promises to his people in unexpected ways. He's a faithful God, which is a testament. It's a testament to his enduring love, right? It's, it's a testament then in turn to his grace, especially in light of how unfaithful we are prone to be as a people. But, but does God always keep his promises? Yes. But does he always keep them in the way that we expected? No. Sometimes he does, but quite frequently he doesn't. And I have to remind myself of that every day. When I look to how he's working in my life, how he's keeping promises in my life, I will always look at it like through this one particular lens, which is always like me, right? And then when I see God's work at my life, it's rarely through that lens. He rarely does he fulfill his promises to me in the ways that I would want, desire, or expect, right? So the people of Jesus' day, they're looking for the promise of a political and national freedom, a freedom that would allow them to be as simple things as like make more money, own their own land, maintain power over the Romans. And they desired for God to once again give them influence and dominion over the surrounding nations. That's a part of that promise, right? But they're looking at it wrongly. They were to be a blessing, not a dominating force. But the real good news of the kingdom of God arriving to reign over the world is that the promise of it, and this is where the people were getting it wrong, the promise of that is not in the stuff, right? But it's in God himself. It's in the manifest, in the person of Jesus Christ. The promise is not an inheritance of wealth and resource or political power and influence. The promise is kept and fulfilled in the king himself. The promise is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth was the messianic promise kept, despite not at all being the Messiah that they desired or expected. So, so Luke records this reaction, right? It's a famous story. Jesus is in his hometown. It's like one of the first things that Jesus does in his public ministry. He shows up on the holy day to the synagogue, right? And he reads this ancient scroll that contains this promise, this ancient promise of God from, again, the prophet Isaiah, one that God's people had been clinging to and hoping to. It's one of the few places that they can look and go like, we know that God's sending a Messiah and we can see what this Messiah is going to do. So Jesus unscrolls it and he's reading. is like, here's what God's Messiah is going to do. He's going to give sight to the blind. He's going to free the oppressed. He's going to break people out of chains and prisons, right? And so he reads this to the people and then he sits down. And he's like, that's all about me, right? And then it says the people do this. They says all of them after that, they speak well of him. They, they marvel at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But then they said, wait a minute. Like, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, we know this guy, right? So, so at first you read the story and you're like, man, the people are amazed. They, they admire Jesus. They're like, man, this Jesus guy, he knows some things, right? But then after a while, especially if you look at the larger context of how Luke records this, eventually they turn on him. Eventually, their fascination and admiration starts to fade. And the real implications of what he's doing begins to dawn on them. By verse 28, like this previously admiring crowd of Jesus who's like, man, we love Jesus. It says, Luke records like later on, like within the same story, they're just now filled with rage at him. Like how quickly an audience can turn. Like I'm painfully aware of that every Sunday, right? 
how quickly they can turn. It's because this, right? Fans are fickle. Followers are faithful. And you see it all the time in Jesus's ministry. The people that he would attract would eventually turn on him. Jesus was not in the business of attracting crowds. He was in the business of making disciples. And so they could see Jesus, right? They could see this as the fulfillment of the promise, but only like they were thinking of it in one way. They were thinking of liberty and freedom in one way, which was their personal freedom and liberty. But the problem is God was thinking of it in another way. Like if they would have tracked the trajectory of Jesus's life and his ministry, what would they have seen Jesus doing? They would have seen him helping the poor. They would have seen him setting people free from possession and lifelong illnesses. They would have seen him raise the dead. They would have seen him give sight to the blind. They would have seen Jesus fulfill every single thing that he said, that, uh, that Isaiah said that, that Messiah would fulfill. And so while Jesus shows up and he doesn't break the yoke of Roman oppression over the nation of Israel. It's just not what he does. He does give them a new way to live. He invites them into this new life with a lighter yoke. He gives them a way to break the spirit of oppression in their life by living in a new kingdom, by, by showing them a new kingdom. No matter what earthly ruler reigned over that physical space that they were occupying, Jesus shows up and says to them that the kingdom of God, despite there being another kingdom occupying this space, the kingdom of God is here and it's now and it's breaking in. And he said that the kingdom was coming in and through and by him as its king. And listen, like this is a hard pill to swallow. It was a hard pill to swallow then, it's a hard pill to swallow now. But let's just be honest. If you find the message of Jesus, like easy to digest, if it never confronts you on any level, right, you'd better check the label on the box because you just might be consuming a diluted version of this whole thing. Because if your version of Jesus checks all of your boxes, your Jesus is just simply too safe. If it never confronts you on any level, you've just got the sanitized wrong version of Jesus. The message of Jesus, that he himself is life and you can't get it anywhere else, least of all in yourself, it's really one of the hardest messages we could ever hear because it goes completely against all of our presuppositions, all of our biases, all of our opinions. It radically even goes against the bent of our soul because our hearts are crooked, our hearts are turned in on themselves, we are consumed by and full of ourselves. And so when Jesus says like, hey, like you simply can't save yourself, man, that rubs us the wrong way. We're like, no, like I'm good, I can do this. But Jesus says we must be filled with him, that we must make our life about him. And his commands, right, his commands come to us, and his commands like, demand that we, that we change direction, that we repent, that we take up our cross, that we die to ourselves, and anything in us that is anti-him. That is the unexpected path to life in the kingdom of heaven, following Jesus out of an authentic faith. Super challenging. If you don't find following Jesus difficult, like, you should ask yourself, like, am I following Jesus? It's always going to be challenging, but his burden is light. His grace is full. Listen, we believe at Hub City, we believe that the work of salvation has been accomplished by Jesus himself. 
We get into the kingdom not through our own efforts. Jesus earns our way. But if I'm honest, like it's so challenging to actually live that out as if that's the case, right? Because belief and faith are two separate things. Like you can believe that, but that doesn't mean you have faith in that. The bitter pill for the, for the people of Jesus's day wasn't just the disappointment that came when their hope of a physical liberation from the kingdom wasn't met. What was even like, more challenging, what even harder for them to reconcile was that some, some wannabe Messiah, right, would, would come in and claim authority over the law, and, and not only authority, right, and then we'll see this next, but he, he claimed to actually be the fulfillment of that law. And this is how it connects to the story of these 10 words. You see, the law, they knew it. They knew it like the back of their hands. They'd studied the law for centuries. It had been what guided them as a people, right? It's what's defined them as a people. Don't get me wrong. They were never faithful to the law. They broke the law at every turn, but it was so important to them. So let's look at the law. Specifically, what does the New Testament say about it? Which is basically this. It's good. It has an important role in your life. It's always had an important role in the life of the people of God, but it can't save you. And following the law, Following it was the way that God's people could demonstrate that they were, in fact, God's people. It's what set them apart and made them distinct. But a person didn't get saved by following the law, even in the Old Testament. That, that wasn't its purpose. So we get it twisted. I think it's super easy for us to just go like, we need categories, right? Like, are you category people? Like, I need everything to fit in this box. And so we just, we, we say this, like, we get it so twisted. In the Old Testament, I think we just arrive at like, well, people were probably saved by following the law because we don't understand whether the law fits. We're like, well, that's what it did. But in the New Testament, they're saved by Jesus, right? Well, that's a false dichotomy, bad theology. The law provided the sign and it gives the boundaries of kingdom life for God's people. So following the law, doing the works of the law, then and now today, they are a result of your kingdom citizenship. They're not the keys into the kingdom. And under this new covenant, we don't do good works to get salvation. We do good works because we have salvation. That's what James affirms, right? So, so with this in mind, the New Testament calls the Old Testament laws and rituals. And so it talks about them often. It says that they're a shadow because they foreshadow this new covenant that will come with Jesus. So the temple rituals, the sacrifices, the ceremonial cleansings, they were all a symbol of God's real presence to come, God's sacrifice to come, God's cleansing to come in the person of his Messiah. So the Mosaic law and the culture that was instituted around it, that was a promise of God's salvation to his people. And it's such a difficult point to grasp, like especially for the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, as they're struggling, they're hearing Jesus, they're seeing Jesus interact with the law in a way that they didn't think was possible, they thought was blasphemous, they actually thought Jesus was breaking the law and sinning. And so Jesus is instructing them with all of these stories through the gospels. Here's your relationship to the law. And it was so hard for them to wrap their minds around. For, for them, the law was not a means to an end. They didn't see it that way. They didn't see it as a shadow, right? Um, they, they didn't see it as something that would point them to their need for salvation. It was the end in and of itself. It was the point of salvation. And so they didn't, they didn't take it all kindly to like a carpenter's son who, despite 
his apparent lack of formal training, like this guy Jesus had no degrees to hang on his walls. He had not studied, like in their mind, the law as long as they had. Somehow, he shows up and he has more knowledge. He has, he has more depth of understanding than they ever could about the law and the scriptures. And he was saying at, at every turn, every time, if you look through the gospels, every time that Jesus talks about scripture, he's basically saying like, hey boys, like pay attention. That's, that's me. That's talking about me. That points to me. Everything in it points to me. Jesus was so confident in this, right? That the powers that be began to wonder, like, like when they heard his famous Sermon on the Mount, right? Which is really like his exposition on the 10 words, right? If he, if he was actually trying to, to kick the law to the curb, right? But, but Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to put it in its right context, which is to say that he came to put the law in the context of himself. Matthew records Jesus's response. He, 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 he like gives this beautiful sermon and then they start questioning him. Like, well, what about the law? And he says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away and not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, so like he's saying, like, listen, like we're not kicking it to the curb. Like just because I'm here, the law still has something to do with you. You still have a relationship to the law. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, so like don't dismiss them. They're still a part of your life. Still follow them and teaches others to do the same. He will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So the person that dismisses the law, doesn't understand their relationship to the law and leads other people to an like, inappropriate relationship to the law, they will be called the least of these in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So still keep, keep them, still, still teach them. They still have a place in your life. So God didn't drop the law like he had made a mistake. Jesus isn't a do-over for the law. He is the culmination of the hopes cultivated by the law and the prophets. He didn't come to cover their mistakes. He came to answer their calls for righteousness and deliverance. The law tells us, like, we're messed up. We need fixing. And Jesus says, I know I can do all of that. The prophets tell us, we like sheep have gone astray, we are unfaithful. We deserve fiery judgment for all of our sins. And Jesus says, I know, and I'll save you from that. So the law and the prophets are God's promises to save his people, to enter into history and redeem his people. So all, all of this, right? All of these promises, they're all kept, right? The problem is, again, they did not look like what the people expected. And although his kingdom and his plan were, were just not what many of them actually even preferred. Jesus's message is this. I am the promised one. I am the promise kept. The, this, this promise kept then issues a deeper call, a call which demands are made upon us. These demands are something else that I think the modern church has like conveniently eroded in our life and teaching on Jesus. Like, we love the whole forgiveness of sins thing. We're in for that. We love the whole grace thing, right? We're all on board for that. We're just not super stoked at the whole, like, pick up your cross and die to yourself thing, right? We're not comfortable with that. We're not comfortable with, like, wait, there's still self-sacrifice? Like, we're still called to live sacrificially? Because, because, man, we think we're pretty good people, right? We're like, well, I don't know. I've got it figured out. Like, I'm a pretty good person. I'm awesome, I know this because Ted Lasso tells me so, right? So we like to think of ourselves of having like these like issues or problems. We, we like maybe like I've got some personality quirks. I've, I've made some mistakes. 
but we don't tend to think of ourselves as sinners who need salvation. We fancy ourselves as a struggling people who need some practical tips from Jesus on how to succeed in life. So because of that, right, because of that whole take up your cross thing doesn't sell very well for us. Like we conveniently all too often leave it out of our spiritual experience. We forget that forgiveness of sin calls for blood and demands sacrifice. But whose? So in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, Jesus fulfills the sacrificial promise. And and because of that, because him fulfilling that, it begins to erect his kingdom that infiltrates our hearts and minds, and it changes the whole course of history. Though this emptying of Jesus, this emptying of himself through that, right, the crooked paths are made straight, and the rough places are made plain, and the high places are made low, just as Isaiah promised. So let's go back to that Sermon on the Mount for a second and just frame this up, right? Look at some of the promises that Jesus makes to those who are on the low side of this upside-down world. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So here's the important thing to remember about the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a prescription for behavior modification, right? There's some obvious, like, yeah, like, do these things. There, there are commands to live in a certain way. There's no denying that. But, but more than being stuff to do, we have to approach them, and really the law, as stuff to be, right? We, we, they become stuff to be for us, not just stuff to do. It's a description. It's an invitation to kingdom life. It's a description of what this kingdom looks like. So for those of us that are kind of on the hoping side of hope still, it's a promise. It's a reassurance to those at the bottom of the barrel that they will be redeemed. It's a pledge to those that are on the low that they will be raised up. It's a promise that while the spiritually impoverished and malnourished may not be made monetarily rich, they will inherit the kingdom of God. That the spiritually empty, they'll be filled in the kingdom of God. That those who mourn death will be comforted in seeing that Christ has conquered it. That the meek will rule this new earth because it isn't ruled by military might or political power. Jesus' kingdom blueprint is the announcement that God has kept his promises to his people, to all that hope in him for deliverance through him. All of our hope for God's redemption are here and now in Jesus Christ, in the kingdom that he brings. He is the promise of salvation, both in his death and his resurrection. It's by his death that we get to avoid being separated from God and his kingdom. And it's in his resurrection that we will one day see a glorious redemption from the pains of this world to the wonders of the next, because Christ's resurrection is a promise of our own future resurrection. One day you and I will get to slip out of these physical bodies that God promises that to us, like through the resurrection of the real person of Jesus to raise up and to fulfill our hopes for this new world where there's no pain or trouble, there's no grieving or mourning, there's no adultery or unfaithfulness, there's no global warming or car sickness, there's no morning breath or bad hair days anymore, right? Isn't that a hope worth keeping 
Isn't that a hope worth rejoicing in? Isn't that a promise worth desperately clinging to in the face that all that life would bring? Christ's life is a promise to you and a promise to me of new life. Christ's death is a promise to us that death is not in vain. His resurrection is a promise to us that we will rise up out of the grave one day and the kingdom that we will live in spiritually now one day will drown out the kingdoms of this world for eternity. It may feel like this world is circling down the drain that our bodies are like indeed winding down, right? But our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the keeper of promises. Our great God and Redeemer lives, and one day he will return, and this old earth will be restored in an eternal splash of glory. Our sagging flesh and aching bones, our slowing hearts, our diseased cells will be taken from us, and we'll get fresh legs, freshly purified hearts, and fresh lungs to breathe the fresh air of this new heaven and this new earth. We'll get fresh eyes to finally see Jesus face to face. Church, we've been rescued once, and that rescue was a promise kept and a promise of glory to come. Someday we'll be rescued again in such a way that we're going to laugh at all the things that make us cry today. Our anguish over this world and our hurt from the experiences of living in it will become a joy in this new world and this worshipful pleasure that it brings to our hearts. And none of this is possible. It's not even preferable without the promise of Jesus. So let's respond, church. I hope you see Jesus as promises kept to you today. Let's respond. Let's respond how we do. We're going to sing. We're going to pray. We're going to give. And then we get to go today. There's a deep invitation, a call to us to go to the table. Go to the table and consume and share this meal and recognize the fulfillment of the promise at that table. We see Jesus' death and his life and his resurrection. And he invites us to deeply come and consume his life which gives us new life. So let's worship our good and glorious King. Let me pray and we'll respond. Father, we thank you.